0: So I just
1: want to start with a quick thank you to CMS for giving me the chance to be here this year in this community, and also thanks for the chance to talk today. Um, It's good timing for me. This talk is based on a chapter that I'm just finishing up. So uh, I guess sort of behind all of this, uh, I welcome any feedback that you have as, uh, as, as I go through this and as we have the discussion at the end. So I'm going to start by giving you a little bit of background on the project that provides the basis for today's talk. Uh, And then I'll move into my discussion of yellow journalism. And before I do that, I'll give you a little bit of an outline of the argument that I'll be making today. So starting with the background on the project, as Jim mentioned, the book is tentatively titled Electrifying News. And it explores the shift that took place in the boundaries of news writing as writers, editors, and producers at the time at the end of the 19th century responded to 19th century media change. And as the photo here evokes uh, one factor in this media change was new technology and these are a mix of telegraph and telephone wires in this photo. It's from the New York Public Library collection. I don't think it's attributed to a photographer um, and it's a picture of the great blizzard of 1888 which not only was a big snowy event but it was a big news event in the city Um, and I won't get into this in this talk but I think it's interesting at the very bottom that this are depicted some of the workers who were hired to shovel the snow and clear the streets Um, and just as a a sort of side note just as the workers are sort of overshadowed by this big infrastructure in this picture um, that happens a lot in the news stories uh, that in this time period that I look at in, in New York City. Um, that uh, Some of the, the city's working class doesn't always have much of a presence in, in, in these stories. So just a, a little side note there. Um, so there were other ta- technologies as well uh, that were contributing to this media change in the 19th century, uh, steam powered printing presses, uh, the linotype machine later in the 19th century, Various technologies for uh, bringing images into the press, uh, lithography, photography, Uh, and then also there were changes to the way that institutions were running the business of news and also to who was being involved in, in creating news. So the argument in the book is that in the changing media ecology of the late 19th century, the question of how to update realistic writing for modern times in newspapers as well as literary texts, and I won't really be talking about literary texts today, but that's part of the argument, um, that this was a transnational phenomenon in the 1880s and 1890s. And the modern idea of writing the real was developed through experiments conducted by writers who worked as journalists, novelists, or both. Together, they helped to define the boundaries of the journalistic and literary fields that would solidify in the 20th century. So in the book, I look at three genres that I consider as experiments with news at the time to make this case. Uh, The first is the new journalism of New York's Daily Newspapers, and what you'll be hearing about today is what I consider a later phase of new journalism, yellow journalism, and I'll get into what I mean by that in a minute. Uh, I also look at the realist novel, uh, particularly examples by... William Dean Howells, Henry James, and Mark Twain. And then finally, I look at a Latin American genre that appeared in newspapers at the same time called the Cronica Muranista. Literally, it's the modern chronicle. Uh, And one of the primary writers of this chronicle was a Cuban named José Martí. Many of you have probably heard of him. I'll also be mentioning him a little bit more later in the talk. And he was based in New York City and intersected with some of the newspapers that were experimenting and innovating at the time in the United States as well. So that forms part of the story. So this framing of this project came from observing experiments uh, in today's changing media ecology. Does anyone recognize where this comes from? It's it's a, It used to be. It doesn't look like it is anymore, but it was an icon that uh, the Daily was using um, on, on their website to promote uh, their approach to journalism in the, on the iPad, um, the iPad app uh, for their news magazine. Um, the project of Rupert Murdoch, and it, came, it launched, I think, in February of 2011. And it was one of the first things that got me thinking about uh, the parallels between the 1880s and 1890s and now. This idea, new times demand new journalism, was very much behind the experiments that I look at in the 1880s and 1890s, and you'll see how that was the case in yellow journalism in the way I talk about it today. Um, Other parallels that I found myself noticing, in both cases, changing technologies were inspiring new thinking about the possibilities for publishing the present. It doesn't mean that they determined certain ways of doing it, for sure, but they inspired lots of different possibilities that were competing with each other. Um, and this thinking came not only from those who were immediately associated with the business of news, but from innovators who were outside of those leading institutions. And of course that's happening today. That was happening then as well. The Realist Novel was one of my examples that was certainly outside of the traditionally thought of news business that, that, was, that was thinking in, in, in new ways and in some ways outpaced uh, the newspaper industry in anticipating some of the journalistic standards that came to be important in the 20th century. I'm not talking about that here, but just to give you an example. And then finally, what was at stake was the future of what could be called news, who got to be part of it, and how it would mediate and possibly improve the world. And I mention that last part because one of my primary interests in this project is the optimism that appears behind some of these experiments then and now. And, and in so many cases in the 19th century, and this is what we'll see with yellow journalism, that optimism fizzled or became seriously corrupted. So part of what I'm interested in generating is some lessons that can help with today's experiments with civic media, citizen journalism, and other approaches to mediating change, which is a term that I hear people mention a lot around here. So I'll talk about that more in a minute. Uh, let me just pause to make sure. Can everyone hear me okay in the background? Okay. Okay. All right, so for today's talk, uh, this is just a brief outline of what we'll be moving into for the argument. Um, what was yellow journalism? I'll start with just a little bit of a definition of the form that this took in the, the short-lived moment of experimentation as it was part of a competition between the New York World and the New York Journal. So obviously the term has, has been able to live on beyond this moment of experimentation, but I'll talk about what I mean in this historically specific moment. Then I'll move into talking about a lesser-known aspect of yellow journalism. Uh, There's no doubt that the motivation behind this innovation was largely about attracting audiences and selling newspapers. But there was an idea that newspapers could contribute to reform, uh, and I'll talk about that. There's one historian, uh, Joseph Campbell, who some of you may have heard of, who has talked about this some, but for the most part, uh, this isn't part of the dominant narrative of how we think about yellow journalism and the history of journalism. For revolutionary action, I'll talk a little bit about how this all came to a head in a way in Cuba's 1895 independence war with Spain. And again, I want to look at a lesser-known aspect of this, how it intersected with Cuban efforts to promote their own cause. So they had their own sort of public relations campaign going that actually engaged newspapers in New York and brings, I think, a little bit of a different dimension to this whole discussion. And then finally, we'll look at a few examples of how this started falling apart and, and moving into ideas about journalism and being more distanced and removed that sound more familiar probably to us today, uh, or at least from a 20th century perspective. And finally, I'd like this to lead into the implications for today's experiments with journalism that seek to act or enable others to act. And let me just qualify that a little bit. Uh, I don't think that we're in danger of repeating the same mistakes of yellow journalism They came from a very specific moment in the history of news, which I'll be talking about, and also a very specific moment in the history of US imperialism, which will be in the background of this talk. I also don't think that we're lacking in self-awareness about the challenges of mediating change today. I think there actually is a quite lively conversation about how to be inclusive and how to cross various divides, digital and otherwise. But I do think that we can improve our understanding of the history of mediating change. And I don't mean to say that I'll be able to fill that gap today, but I'm hoping that this talk will start a conversation that could be productive. So what exactly was yellow journalism? This refers to a, reproach, a approach to reporting that resulted from the competition, as I've mentioned, between the New York World, which was owned by Joseph Pulitzer at the time, and the New York Journal, which was owned by William Randolph Hearst. Um, at the time. And when I say at the time, I'm really talking about the late 1890s because Hearst didn't buy the journal until 1895. So the world had about a decade of experimentation on its own before this new competitor entered onto the scene. And I'll just talk a little bit of some of the characteristics of yellow journalism, other than what I'll talk about in the rest of the talk, which is this emphasis on action and reform. Uh, There were large print headlines. That was a new thing around this period of time. And Yellow Journalism took that to an extreme in terms of size and also in terms of what the content of those headlines was. So I'll give you one example that I just pulled from an 1896 issue of the New York Journal. Uh, it says quote, husband's body in a dark pool, aged Mrs. Wilson accused of killing her invalid partner, his body headless and wasted away secreted under their cellar. That was a front page headline. So. These <laughs> sort of amazingly gruesome headlines that tell their own story before you get to the story at all. Uh, there were also publicity stunts, uh, which is probably another thing you have heard of. Bicycles were very popular, or becoming popular in this, at this point in time. So the New York Journal did a race across the country on a bicycle, and that was a way of generating news for the front page. And the first color comics, uh, some of the first color comics appeared in the world in in the journal during this time. So that's where our friend here comes from. This image draws from one of these comics. He's the yellow kid of Richard Outkolt's Hogan's Alley. uh, And that first appeared in The World in 1895. And one reason, just as a side note, that historians give for the reason that he's wearing a yellow Gown is that the printer at the New York World wanted to test a new yellow ink at the time. Using color inks was new in this period, and apparently yellow was a particularly challenging color. So that's one possible reason why he's yellow. Um, He became very popular, and so in 1896, Hearst attracted the artist from the New York World to the New York Journal. The New York World kept publishing The Yellow Kid and Hogan's Alley with a different artist, but he also appeared, The Yellow Kid also appeared in a series of comics that were produced by outquotes for the New York Journal. So this has become an example of the extremes to which both editors were willing to go to in order to generate publicity and attract readers and and compete with each other. So there's debate about how much this really contributed to the term yellow journalism, but at least indirectly, it's probably there. It first appeared in print in 1897 in the New York Press uh, in an editorial written by editor Edwin Wardman and he was critiquing both the world and the journal. The New York Press had experimented with other terms as well. One was nude journalism, which was a play on nude journalism. And another term that the New York Times experimented with was freak journalism. So they kept printing articles around the same time about the freak journalism of the world and the, and, and the journal. So I also just want to talk a little bit about the context in which this yellow journalism participated just in terms of the other newspapers that were on the scene at the time. Because one thing that is a little bit perhaps unfair about the the way that the sensationalism in yellow journalism gets described is that it's important to recognize that there were very different ideas about journalism in general happening at the time. And so it's not like the sensationalism and the embellishment that was in New in yellow journalism came from nowhere. So this is a picture of Newspaper Row in New York City. Uh, The photo is from about 1906, but the term Newspaper Row started being used around this time in the late 19th century. Uh, And it shows some, not all, of the players in the news market in the the 1890s. And I'm going to use this to sort of paint a little bit of a picture of the context. I've already said that there were innovators outside of the main institutions who were already participating. So this is just a partial image, but just to help illustrate as I talk through this. So on the far side is the New York World Building, and the World, along with the Journal, as I've said, were pushing the boundaries of a new kind of writing, and also reaching circulation rates that were unprecedented at the time. In the middle is one of the legacy institutions that was also competing for readers in New York, uh, the New York Tribune. Along with the New York Sun and the New York Herald, it had been part of an earlier revolution in newspapers in the earlier 19th century. Uh, it was one of the penny papers, and they were among the first to move news outside of the boundaries of political commentary and commercial commentary. So sometimes people will say that the human interest story was first appeared around that time with the penny papers in the 1830s. And these institutions, by this point, were old and now facing another new journalism, uh, but they were still major players on the scene. And then on the right we have the New York Times which had been part of this penny paper revolution but had relatively low circulation rates at the time. It really wasn't a big player in this particular moment. Uh, Alfred Ox purchased it in 1896. He's the one who started the campaign and the use of the term freak journalism um, and eventually made the Times into what it is or helped to. Uh, But it it, it's interesting to note that it was sort of a smaller voice at this, at this period in time. So along with these, this quite a bit of competition that was happening, there's also what I've alluded to, a very different perspective on what news really was. Um, this was before the solidification of 20th century journalistic standards and the ideal of objectivity. Uh, there's debate about exactly when that came into play. Michael Schudson argues that it really wasn't until after World War I that objectivity in a, a sort of fully formed capacity came to be an ideal in journalism. So it's not exactly fair to say that sensationalism or imaginative embellishment in yellow journalism came from nowhere. And let me just give you two quotes from outside of the world and the journal that give you some indication of the way people were thinking about news and, and the debates that were going on at the time. So this quote is from a sort of guidebook that was published in 1894 by Edwin Llewellyn Schumann called Steps into Journalism. And it's interesting in itself, just the the existence of publications like this uh, happened because reporters and the profession of reporting itself was, was just sort of picking up at this point and becoming popular, partly because of some of the popular reporters who were appearing in the world in the journal, like Richard Harding Davis Julian Ralph, who also wrote for The Sun, but wrote for The Journal. So there were a lot of people, especially young college graduates, who were interested in becoming reporters. And so there were a number of books that came out offering advice on how to get involved in the hard knock world of of city journalism. This was one of those books. And you'll see from this quote that um, he's really saying, you know, there's a role for imagination. Yes, we're a little... Sensitive about it, and there has to be some line between fact and fiction. But there's there's some important role that you that you need to be keeping in mind for using imagination in news writing. So that's that's one example. And then another one comes from Charles Dana, who was the editor of the New York Sun at the time, and he was a critic of yellow journalism, but in his own way was creating a new, very uh, story-telling based approach to journalism. Um, I argue in another chapter in this book that he really was engaging with new journalism as well. And he too is arguing that there's a place for, he doesn't say imagination here, but embellishment and and telling stories that will wrap the truth in something that will keep keep people engaged. So, and finally, as I've mentioned, it's worth noting that reporting, which was becoming a recognized profession during this period, also sort of represented something different than what we might think about today. So, Um, reporters were seen to have a real active role in going out into the city and digging up news and and even in, in a newspaper like The Sun, making themselves heroes of the stories that they wrote. So even outside of yellow journalism, reporters were seen as actors in their stories and often compared to soldiers, or my favorite comparison at the time is the reporter is the modern knight errant, which comes up a lot. So what's particularly interesting about this openness to imagination is that it gave writers and editors quite a bit of freedom to act on their own stories. Before we get into how that went wrong in the somewhat extreme versions of the world and the journal, it's worth taking a moment to consider some of the optimism and promise that came with this idea at the time. So one of the defining features of yellow journalism as it was produced by the world and the journal was the promotion of progressive causes. Pulitzer frequently published stories that highlighted the struggles of the city's working classes and the corruption of some of the major business interests of the period. I'll give you a couple of examples from the 1880s. This was before the journal came onto the scene. One was that the world published a number of articles that attacked the high prices that dairies were charging for milk. It turned out they were charging high prices and also diluting the milk with water and sometimes other fillers. And reporters for the world discovered that railroads were squeezing dairy profits by charging a premium to transport milk. And the world was able to expose this story as an example of corporate corruption. Another example addressed the lack of funds for a pedestal that would support the Statue of Liberty. When the project seemed hopelessly stalled in the city's hands, Pulitzer launched a drive for donations that ultimately made it possible to prepare for the statue's inauguration in 1886. So a decade later, Hearst built on Pulitzer's model to develop a, consul, a concept of what he called the journalism that acts. And that's where the quote on this slide comes from. It's one of a, It was one of a series of articles published by Hearst about his vision for the future of journalism. And I couldn't resist adding this illustration here, which doesn't come from the journal. It was published in Scrivener's by Julian Ralph, who did also work for the journal. Uh, and I just think it's a, an indication of how this idea that the reporter is someone who goes out there and acts on the world uh, existed outside of yellow journalism at the time. There he is taking off his gloves and not necessarily looking like he's gonna sit down in front of a typewriter or a pad of paper with a pencil. And he looks like he's sort of ready for, ready for something to happen. And, uh, so in any case, um, Hearst uh, with his vision of, of, of journalism made reporters the protagonists of this approach to journalism. And let me just give you another quote from another article that he published. This is another 1897 article. He says, Action, that is the distinguishing mark of the new journalism. It represents the final state in the evolution of the modern newspaper. It does not wait for things to turn up. It turns them up. So what did this look like in the journal? Um, One of its early triumphs was an effort to find the perpetrator of a brutal murder that resulted in the discovery of a dismembered torso in the East River. And the paper sent several reporters to look for clues and promptly outpaced police and competing reporters from the world in identifying the body and turning up two murder suspects. Around the same time, the journal also played a sort of watchdog role in New York City. And in 1897, this was a particularly sort of busy year for this and kind of the, maybe the banner year for action journalism, the journal stepped in to block corruption in awarding in the awarding of a number of city contracts for transportation and also for utilities. So you, historian Joseph Campbell, who I mentioned earlier, has argued that the journal repeatedly quote stepped into the vacuum left by government incompetence and indifference end quote at the time. So by the late 1890s, this approach to making news had attracted some excitement in the news industry. And here's how one commentator from a trade journal called The Journalist uh, talked about yellow journalism, or the action element of yellow journalism at the time. It's pretty different from how we generally hear about it. From this perspective, the journal and the world seem to be modeling a new form of journalism that could advocate for good causes and play a vital new role in supporting the public interest. This model of journalism that advocates for the public interest got put to the test in the case of Cuba's independence war with Spain that broke out in 1895. Most of us are familiar with the way in which the world and the journal advocated for US intervention, which happened in 1898. And I'll just briefly give an overview of of some of the narrative that goes with this. Uh, Following the start of Cuba's 1895 revolution, both newspapers printed stories that promoted the Cuban cause with such zeal that the war itself has been called the Correspondence War. Much debate surrounds the question of whether Pulitzer and Hearst actually motivated US infer- intervention. What is clear is that their manner of reporting on the war between Cuba and Spain helped millions of North Americans, including members of Congress, imagine the reasons for getting involved. Both papers repeatedly printed stories that cast Cuba's struggle as an analog to the US Revolution and they portrayed the aspiring nation as urgently needing North American support. And ultimately, the acquisition of Puerto Rico and the Philippines by the United States and the limits on Cuban sovereignty established through the Platt Amendment have implicated yellow journalism in turn-of-the-century U.S. imperialism. I'm not engaging with that debate in this talk, nor am I denying or apologizing for yellow journalism. What I'm interested in focusing on here is the the way in which the coverage of the Spanish-Cuban-American War in both papers put the very foundation of ideas about journalism during the period to the test. And I'm referring here to some of what we've seen. The idea that a journalist could fill in stories with imaginative elements. Uh, The idea that reporters could be heroes and advocates as well as gatherers of news. And then in the particular case of the action journalism of the world and the journal, the idea that journalism should be an advocate for for good causes, however they might define that. One understudied aspect of the world's and the journal's coverage of the war that brings this to light is the role that the Cuban revolutionaries played themselves in promoting stories about their cause. And this is where uh, the photo on this slide comes in. This is a portrait of Jose Marti, who I mentioned, uh, who lived in New York in the 1880s and, and early 1890s and worked as a foreign correspondent and also was a major organizer of the revolution. Uh, By the time the revolution had broken out, New York City was home to quite a number of Cubans who sought greater freedom in their publishing and organizing activities. And from New York, Martí was able to launch his own newspaper, a Spanish-language newspaper called Patria, which was dedicated to Cuban and Puerto Rican independence. And he also organized the Cuban Revolutionary Party. Martí, as a leader in this movement, saw newspapers as potential allies in the fight against Spain. Although he died in combat at the outset of the war, organizers based in New York maintained a close relationship with the press. Uh, One member of the Cuban Revolutionary Party, who was the attorney for the party, Horacio Rubens, held daily press briefings in his New York office. And the party also supplied information to reporters in Key West, Jacksonville, and Tampa. For a brief moment, revolutionary thinking intersected with prevailing ideas about how to make news. The optimism behind action journalism reflected a belief in the transformative power of language, which also appeared in Martí's writing about Cuba and Latin America. And I'll just go into a little bit more detail about what I mean by this. And we can talk about this more in the discussion if you're interested. Throughout his essays, Martí also equates language with action and creativity. Perhaps most famously, his 1892 essay, Our America, which many of you probably have run into, describes the need to oppose U.S. imperial designs on Latin America and act as an act that requires imagination. He says, quote, The solution is to create. Create is the password of this generation. And the text itself of Our America enacts such a solution by envisioning what he calls a new local reality for Latin America, which scholars have long identified as one of the first articulations of a pan-Latin American identity. Through essays like this, Martí published a new, concept- new conceptual spaces that reimagined Latin America's place in late 19th century geopolitics. And my suggestion here is that, if only for a fleeting moment, similar beliefs about writing and action were behind the experiments in print uh, that, that writers like Martí undertook in pursuit of the revolution, and that newspapers promoting progressive causes undertook. Of course, U.S. newspapers took the story of a worthy cause in Cuba in their own direction. So I'll just give you a few examples of some of the most famous stories of of where this went. One, uh, and the journal cited this as one of its most successful stories covering Cuba, uh, was an episode that involved the rescue of Evangelina Cosio Cisneros, a young Cuban woman who had been imprisoned by the Spanish authorities and was awaiting trial. The paper of the New York Journal assigned its correspondent, Carl Decker, to rescue Cisneros. That's how US newspapers referred to her. And the journal poured resources into sneaking her out of jail, smuggling her on a steamboat to New York, and holding a welcome reception there for her and for Decker, which of course made front page news the next day. So it's an example of how uh, a very savvy approach to publicity combined with an effort to support uh, this cause, uh, but in a, in a in a way that featured the heroism of of Americans. In fact in this story as in most from the world in the journal uh, war reporters war correspondents equated themselves with war heroes and Cuba's ability to act disappeared behind the heroic actions of US reporters and soldiers. I'll give you one other example of this uh, a familiar argument. Uh, Stephen Crane The novelist worked as a foreign correspondent for the Journal and the World, and one of his articles for the World, which was called Stephen Crane at the Front for the World, talks about uh, the Rough Riders um, and their attack on San Juan Hill. And he says, quote, The Rough Riders advanced steadily and confidently under the Mauser bullets. They spread across some open ground, and there they began to fall, smothering and threshing down in the grass, marking man-shaped places among those luxuriant, luxuriant blades, end quote. As the story continues, Crane encounters a wounded newspaper correspondent. And as surrounded by soldiers and having suffered a similar fate, the correspondent appears as another type of soldier. Crane himself explains in in this story to another US soldier who came along and asked what he was doing, quote, I am a correspondent, and we are merely carrying back another correspondent who we think is mortally wounded. So with these words, Crane brings himself into the story as a war correspondent who not only observes the trials and triumphs of of war, but acts in them as well. And the Cuban Revolution becomes a scene for American heroism and action on the battlefield and in print. So this illustration, this was by Frederick Remington, who also did sketches for the journal um, as a correspondent uh, in Cuba, evokes this bias. You can see this is showing the Rough Riders um, doing their charge on San Juan Hill, and actually even to the the accuracy of what this was depicting and where it took place has been debated since. But there's very little representation. There's no representation of the other side of Spain, and there's very little representation of Cubans. So it really turns the heroes into Americans. Ultimately, the coverage of the Spanish-Cuban American War did much more to highlight the problems with the journalism that acts than it did to realize the promise of revolutionary action. So first, it brought into the spotlight, as I'm starting to mention here, questions about accuracy in the news. Uh, And just one more example that really uh, gave the Tribune and the New York Times the opportunity to really gain some traction with their critiques is an article that was written by Richard Harding Davis, a very popular celebrity journalist at the time, that was published under the headline, Does Our Flag Protect Women? Uh, This was during the buildup to the US intervention uh, in Cuba's war and it involved three Cuban women who were on board a US ship called the Olivet, and they were searched by Spanish authorities. His piece, Davis's piece, did not specify that the three Cuban women had been searched by female Spanish detectives, and the story ran with a graphic by Remington that pictured several menacing male Spaniards surrounded by a Cuban woman. So it's a little hard to make this out here, but you get the idea. It was certainly misleading, and it gave the Times and even the world an opportunity to, to really critique what was going on with yellow journalism. Uh, Davis, by the way, resigned from the journal after the incident and tried to dissociate himself from Hearst. Also raising the question of ac- accuracy was the fact that as a result of the restrictions that Spanish forces placed on the war co- correspondence in Cuba, one of the things that the correspondents ended up imagining was their very presence in the battles of the war. Uh, So that's to say that most people didn't get permission to leave Havana, basically, and only the most intrepid of war correspondents was able to sneak out and, and observe the battles. So the image of war correspondents dreaming up battles from the cafe tables of Havana's Hotel Inglaterra makes it easier to understand why the news industry would begin to demand bolder lines between fact and fiction. So there's this accuracy question, and then there's also the fact that the coverage of the Spanish-Cuban-American War in the world in the journal fueled discussions about what the alternative might be. Because as I've said, this is a moment of experimentation, and there, there wasn't yet a dominant sense of what the alternative might be. So I just want to look quickly at one example that came from a New York Herald reporter called George Bronson Ray. And he wrote this interesting book in 1897 called Facts and Fakes About Cuba which called out inaccuracies and also kind of proposed an alternative. Incidentally, Ray had lived in Cuba before the war and his knowledge of the island helped him to become one of the correspondents who was able to see the battlefields. So there was an element of self-promotion in this book because he was able to say that he was a better kind of correspondent than the other correspondents uh, who hadn't been able to do what he had done. Ray's critique offers an alternative view of how a new story should be told which is worth taking a moment to consider. His book describes an argument that he claims to have had with Cuban general Maximo Gomez while Ray was on assignment for the Herald. And according to Ray, there was a moment when Gomez objected to a story that Ray had written about the capture by Cuban insurgents of the small town called Paredes. And Ray's story alleged that the insurgents had left behind their wounded. Gomez feared that such a detail in the report would, quote, hurt the Cuban cause, end quote. When Gomez insists, in his version of this story, that uh, uh, he needs to report what he saw, and um, he talks about the testimony that he received from several participants in the battle whom he met in his travels. And he says, quote, I'm convinced that the people told me the truth, and I will believe them in preference to a one-sided report. So Ray's words introduced a concept that was still in its infancy at the time, the idea of telling a news story from multiple sides, and the problem with a one-sided report. And it also shows how the idea of journalism that could promote a good cause, which is still a one-sided cause, began to lose ground to those who advocated a disinterested approach to writing news. So it's not hard to understand why the world's in the journal's model action journalism failed. Especially in the context of a war that ended up serving the imperial aims of the United States, the idea of engaged journalism became troubling, to say the least. Moreover, Hearst's later use of journalism to promote his own attempts to run for political office in the early 20th century demonstrated how easily activist journalism could be compromised by politics. And eventually, Pulitzer renounced, somewhat shyly, but sort of renounced his tactics of the 1890s, uh, and partly as a result of all the criticism that was being poured on Hearst. Yet, resurrecting the activist impulse of yellow journalism raises the question of where to locate action within journalism today. It also raises the question of the place of imagination, of conceptualizing new and improved communities in the future of news. So to conclude... And hopefully to open up the conversation, I'll consider one current experiment with locating action in journalism and news. And I'm deliberately picking something from outside of this campus, um, because I hope some of you will talk about your own experiences here. Uh, What I have in mind is uh, the solutions journalism of David Bornstein's Fixes column in the New York Times. And I'm sure some of you are familiar with his work. I know he was at the Civic Media event earlier this summer. So he's certainly part of this community. I've chosen this example because it provides an indication of how much has changed since the 1890s. The idea that journalism could advocate for a cause still shows the stain of Pulitzer's and Hearst's failed experiments with action-oriented news. And this is evident in language that Bornstein uses in an editorial called Why Solution Journalism Matters 2, which was published in the Times last winter. He says, quote, We recognize that journalists have to be especially mindful uh, to avoid reporting that could be construed as advocacy. There's already enough unadulterated opinion, even propaganda, that passes for news today. At the same time, his Fixes column exhibits experimental thinking of news that suggests that there are limitations to 20th century journalistic paradigms, that there's something beyond completely disinterested news that we need to consider. He explains in this article a vision of journalism that can expand what he calls small waves of change, such as, quote, measurable progress mitigating homelessness improving the foster care system, reducing rural poverty, addressing health disparities, and alleviating a variety of other problems. As an effort to, to, quote, explore ideas that we believe have the potential to grow, as opposed to events that occurred in the the past, end quote, solutions journalism is an experiment in finding a place for action within the realm of news. That place, he suggests, is not with the reporter, but rather with the reader or the user, Uh, he quotes a reader of the column who writes, quote, responsibility for action is too often shoved off to elected officials, bureaucrats, and not assumed by local citizens, end quote. Ultimately then, journalism can be a powerful tool by becoming, quote, a feedback mechanism to help society self-correct, and by regularly presenting people with innovative ideas and realistic pathways and possibilities that remain outside their view frame. And this is part of the quote that I've added in a little bit more detail on this slide. I think this example exhibits a belief that has currency among a number of experiments with 21st century news. Journalism can be a source of empowering people with information that they could not otherwise access on their own on their own. This trend is reflected, of course, in the shift of the night news challenge towards projects that provide information rather than selected processed news. And and a quote from Knight Foundation CEO Alberto Ibarguin illustrates this. He says, The future of our democracy depends on the quality and reliability of the generally shared information communities receive. An interesting mix of 20th century standards and uh, his vision of what needs to come next. Such 21st century experimentation makes it possible to envision the relationship between journalism and action in a way that may correct the shortcomings of the action journalism of the 1890s. At the same time, today's experiments with news demonstrate a connection between the reform-oriented impulses of the innovators at that time and the efforts to use information to create a more active and effective democracy today. Then as now, the process of making news of the present seems to inspire a desire to make improvements. And as always, that desire comes with unspoken assumptions about where knowledge of the world comes from, who can explain, who can claim expertise over a body of knowledge, and how to conceptualize the places in which they hope to have an impact. As today's innovations in news attempt to relocate action in a realm meant to escape some of the mistakes of the past, it's worth keeping the experience of yellow journalism in mind. After all, webmasters, content editors, and aggregators of news still hold some of the power that reporters did when they were seeking to take responsibility for for action. Understanding where they went wrong can help today's innovators approach the future of news with humility humility and self-awareness, the lack of which may be the fatal flaw of yellow journalism in 19th century news. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Kelly. Uh, and let's open it up for questions, discussion.
1: Hi. Um, I just, going off the basically the ending point where you were talking about journalism as a kind of action and in the modern day, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, this is still formulating itself in my head, but non journalistic things that newspapers do that are explicitly like. Um, providing a new world so for instance like the New York Times changing its wedding section to weddings and celebrations so that they could write about gay marriages for instance Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not that's not what I would call journalism but it's a newspaper putting itself out there like in the same kind of context as like an active like it's it's not explicitly like an activist statement but it it also of is so other other things like that yeah (laughs) <laughs> I guess I would say it exhibits an awareness on the part of the New York Times, which isn't surprising. That they are meeting makers, and that they they do have an influence, and that uh, you know there there is a there is a position uh, behind a decision like that. And one thing that I think is very interesting about the New York Times in particular is that I think for an institution that has a reputation for being so conservative, and you know the legacy institution that people point to it's very aware of the changing landscape and the role that it could be playing in being an innovator, both in terms of its use of technology, and I guess in that case, in terms of of how it is kept conceptualizing communities and conceptualizing norms that do influence people. So I guess I would say there's a real self-awareness on the part of the times that I see in a lot of different instances, and maybe that's, that's one of them.
3: Uh, hi, uh, is this working i can 't tell um, is do you see any possibility for a partisan journalism that actually seeks to provide truth to citizens
1: it's an interesting question and it's one that I have grappled with honestly in a lot of different ways and there was a while when I was working for a a advocacy journalism agency called public news service um and And at the time, this was in 2005, their idea was that there's so many organizations on the right that are packaging news for radio and thereby influencing people with conservative opinions that there needed to be something like that on the left. And so I was interested in sort of seeing how that was working and um, ended up feeling pretty uncomfortable with it. But at the same time, part of what I'm seeing in journalism and shifts in journalism today is... It comes from the limitations of objectivity and and it does seem like there's a possibility to be able to not in a secretive way but if you're putting your perspective out there and saying you know this is my partisan perspective this is my this is this is what I am advocating for maybe there is a way of contributing uh, to news or having some uh, becoming a productive form of news in that way and it, it's something that i feel like I'm working through in this book, I- is there a way to be both biased and, and uh, informative in, in a productive way at the same time? In a way, I sort of feel like that's inevitable, uh, but, but I'm, I'm not sure. It's something I'm, I'm trying to understand myself.
2: I have a, a just a, a quick question. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about the evolution of the newsroom and the functions of uh, editorial... Um, Interventions and editorial directions. And it seems to me that uh, what's happening in this really interesting period you've, you've picked out to uh, uh, look at is there's a kind of evolution in the editorial functions from you know driving sales and production and so forth to beginning to sort through uh, uh, news possibilities with uh, criteria. And you mentioned that you know, there's a parallel here with uh, civic media of the time, and uh, I'm wondering if the editorial functions of civic media are, in some sense, relaxing from, uh, uh, from a period uh, when they were very strong, and whether you're expecting that uh, civic media is moving into a direction of uh, uh, less uh, oversight, less uh, mediated and, and, and uh, editorial interventions. So... I don't know, that's sort of a question or an observation, but could yeah. you comment? Yeah.
1: So meaning that the editorial function was very strong in the 1890s? Well, it
2: began to take shape, and then through, I mean, we've all seen the Hearst uh, excesses and so forth, but sure. uh, at the same time, there were uh, lots and lots of standards being, uh, that were emerging in news reporting. Yeah. Uh, and these were, perhaps they, meet, they met their pinnacle in the 50s or 60s, but uh, I'm just wondering if uh, there's some kind of reversal of that now or the possibility of reversal with uh, less centralized editorial input.
1: Yeah, I mean, let me answer that by talking through a little bit what I see as what was changing in the editorial function in the 1890s because I think maybe what you're getting at is that part of the shifting boundaries of news in in both cases comes from Precisely that a change in, in the editorial function because in the 18, late 19th century, um, you know there was this move throughout the 19th century from a lot of papers in the beginning of the 19th century really just having one editor who was also doing a lot of the writing of the paper and this was before the penny paper revolution that I talked about, there was really sort of one person who had control and and what was being written was a lot of commentary and reflection and, and, and less going out and gathering news based on some sort of event. So what we were seeing in the 1890s was the culmination of this process of news becoming something that happens outside of the newsroom, outside of the editor's mind, mm-hmm. and the reporter uh, becomes the person who does the gathering and putting that all together in stories and the editor, especially in these extreme cases that I'm looking at, becomes the person who has the vision mm-hmm. of what that needs to look like and how that you know, from the perspective of how he, in both cases, wants to create the news but also from the perspective of what's the brand of the paper that that's going to create. Um, So I guess now in a way it seems like there is a a sort of distribution of the editorial function in collaborative forms of news or in websites that gather news stories from different kinds of people. I guess I wonder, I, I wouldn't say that that goes as far as we might be tempted to say because I think that there's still a need for you know, your site needs to have a brand and um, your site needs to have somebody who's collecting and, and reviewing what people are, are, are bringing in. And so, yes, that editorial function is changing and maybe more people have control of it. Do I think that the fundament, fundamentally the model is changing? I'm not sure yet.
4: I want to address the... Uh earlier point um and also what you were just saying as well i, I, I run i'm jason i run uh, open media boston uh which has been boston's left-wing news weekly for about four and a half years uh-huh. except now that i'm doing my mfa thesis we're on hiatus for several weeks so you know when you go look at it don't i'm sorry you know, <laughs> we're not weekly right now but i mean the way we've chosen to deal with both the editorial function uh and i guess the partisanness has yeah. been to, first of all, sort of um, bifurcate the news and editorial functions, right? So, like, yep. news is sacrosanct. To write for our new- First of all, the whole publication is run on a professional basis. So, in a sense, we're taking, I guess, some might consider a step backwards away from c- civic journalism okay. or citizen journalism because I just don't think it works, and I also believe in the strong editor system where the buck stops with me. Yep. So, I mean, I take responsibility for the editorial line of the publication. I'm an open socialist, you know, no particular party. I just have these views... And so we, you know, we have a broadly progressive kind of view on things, and we view the publication's mission is to obviously afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted. We don't have much money to do this, right. uh, but also to um, uh, chronicle the movements. And as in the case of Occupy, when that happened, uh, to be supportive, but, but to kind of do what Latin American professionals, including journalists, often do. We accompany the movement. We're right. not in the movement. Right. And certainly the people who write for the news section are not allowed to participate in anything they're covering, sure. right? And we always are, you know, open about our connections. If there's any conflict of interest, we simply state it, right. okay? So that's kind of how we've, we've gone along, right? And we don't just let anyone write for the publication. Although our opinion pages are open, and we've gotten all different kinds of opinions, you know, and had all kinds of debates there.
1: So, what, so let me ask you a question then. Why would you call that partisan journalism as opposed to, say, the New York Times, which has the same division sure. and – um, you know, pe- you know, it has its own reputation for the, the leanings of its editorials. I
4: say it defensively because I think that we'd be, you know, some people would call us partisan. Okay. I don't feel that we run as a partisan publication. And we're, you know, just as likely to, crit- you know, criticize the NGOs and labor groups and stuff that yeah. we cover. And, unfo- you know, we kind of know too much, you know, about the operations. And then we have to make a decision as people that believe, you know, broadly in, in, in progressive social movements, when when is it right to kind of go after groups that claim to be right. uh, progressive actors?
1: Right. So if partisan is your defensive label because some people would perceive yeah. you that way, how would you describe yourself? I
4: think I'm a journalist.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Hi.
0: I'm Denise Chang. I'm um, one of the CMS grad students. Wait, is this thing working, by the way? It's just for
1: recording. It's
0: oh, okay. <laughs> but um, I actually know Jason from other professional functions in the past, um, and I kind of wanted to take you up on that, the whole idea that citizen journalism doesn't work. I think it kind of depends on what your goal is. So I should explain, I used to be the citizen journalism coordinator of the Repidian, mm-hmm. um, and I think that If you're talking about the 24-hour, like the 24-7 news cycle and the constant news and the broad coverage, making sure that every single uh, potential topic that somebody wants to read about is definitely covered, then no, citizen journalism does not necessarily work well. But if we are talking about action, which seems to be kind of the idea, um, then I would say that actually is an action on the part of... Um, The editorial staff that supports citizen journalists, because if you're talking about moving people to action, like what better way for people to really get to know their issues and have that issue affect their network than to actually create content about it and help them write the best, write or create the best content that they possibly can. Um, And in that process of creating that content, think through what they're trying to convey and how they communicate it to a, um, a much wider audience. Um, but I understand your point of view. But I feel like citizen journalism—it just depends on like what your goal is in that action.
4: My goal is signal versus noise. Okay. And one problem I think we have in web-based media in general is A. There's, well, there's so much of it, and 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 B. You know, everything becomes muddled in the citizen journalism approach. In many cases, not always. I mean, I've, obviously, where you work was a great, the Repidian was I think a sharper example of the of the of the trope. But there's just. I feel like a lot of folks are just kind of doing it to do it, you know, because it's almost hip. And I, and I feel like um, uh, a lot of times people are also muddling the functions of, of, of educating people to be journalists with the actual journalism. So, like, sure, we teach people, too. You have to. Yeah. It's, like, part of what one does. But, you know, do we want to run everything that's produced in that fashion? No. You know, because a lot of it's just not very interesting. A lot of it's too micro-focused. Like, we're kind of a metro, even though, we're, you know, we're small. Um, but uh, a lot of it's uh, dealing with stuff that might not be of interest to a broader audience, but just to a very particular small community. In which case, a hyperlocal publication with that kind of stuff would work. That's not what we want to do. Um, but I, I also just feel that it leads into the, it sort of feeds into the general communitarian uh, nature of the of the current press. You know, where like we're all just sitting around a table and we're all just like equal partners, and every view is as good as any other view. And yet, at the end of the day, the same people are still running the show in society. And, I mean, as, uh, you know, as someone who thinks that, that uh, inequality in society is a real problem, that power relations are a real problem, I think that there's got to be folks that uh, take it as their professional task to call this out and to, to present the sharpest possible case for societal change, you know, as possible. And citizen journalism can do that, but it often just doesn't do it.
1: So let me ask a question for those of you who are practitioners in the group. Uh, it seems to me, and this is something I think I alluded to a little bit in the talk, that one way in which today's experiments are getting around this question of partisan journalism or advocacy journalism is to separate out the role of the publication and the role of the, the users or the readers in, in in participating in action. So that it seems that there is an attempt to say, well, we're inciting our our community towards action, but we ourselves are not taking action. Does that, is, Does that divide resonate? Is that true? Um, is it even possible to create such a line? Yeah,
4: the, the, I'll speak one the, it, you know, it's, There are moments when you, I feel like you might have to cross the line. But yeah. But you generally you don't want to, because it gets unhealthy like you showed like the spanish Cuban american War. Um, There are real problems, you know, like uh, Henry Louis Gates has done a show on Cuba about, he's did show about race relations in Latin America. And his Cuban show talks about this period. Mm-hmm. And he shows the way the American press, you know, yeah, they thought they were helping a revolution, right? But they were stone racists in addition to being oh, imperialists. Yeah. I didn't so, talk about that, but yeah, that's the, sure. the, like, It's mostly yeah. black people making the Cuban revolution, including yeah. its generals. All of it gets buried. And they right. get shown as little black people, if they're right. shown at all, right. like little children. Yeah. Compared to the big, strong American white guy. You know? Right. I, I, you know, so I think that, that uh, when you cross the line, there are great dangers. Sure. Um, but yeah. Occupy is an example where I did editorialize in favor of the movement. Yeah. And I said, you know, there's certain moments in history when you feel like you've got you've to speak up. And
1: so that's what I'm particularly interested in, because I think that's exactly what we're negotiating right now, is when are those moments? I think there's some agreement that there are those moments. But then that's a very difficult line to, it's very difficult.
0: Um, I guess so when, one question I want to ask you as we talk about this is um, so when when it was when, with the Spanish-American War that that was really kind of an interesting point because there, there were these sort of established papers and they tended to be the loudest voice and now that we do have the internet there's a lot of outposts right we were talking about like there's a lot of noise out there um, I mean does that kind of that's kind of where things are a little bit different. Like a lot of people can put, up, put their opinions out there. Does that kind of um, combat any group sort of like taking over and pushing for some sort of like awful revolution of some sort or co-opting it or something like that? Because I would think that now that we have the internet and there are so many voices that can publish themselves, maybe it's not, um, I mean, I, I kind of am a little wary of saying this, but like maybe it's not as critical um, that journalists have such a sharp divide between um, what they write about and some of their um, their beliefs like i i, I guess i 'm of the of the school of thought that no journalist is objective um, right. and and yeah and and what we 're talking about is like so then when do you take action and I think that maybe like the the whole idea of not taking action is preserving editorial integrity, but if there are so many people publishing out there, then maybe that danger isn't as great as it used to be. Except that
4: if you read like, Matthew Hindman's book, The Myth of Digital Democracy, from 2009, he, he gives lie to that. I mean, I agree there's a, that it's acting as a break. Because I wonder myself, why don't big upheavals break out in the US so much? And part of it is, is like there's so many people out there from so many different perspectives calling things out. And inevitably, they score you know, with some of their attacks. And it does act as a break right, on outrageous action. But at the same time, when you look at the internet, and the the news media within the internet, it's still owned by the same major corporations that always owned it. They have a louder voice. They always have the bigger audience, you know, and occasionally there are breakouts, you know, here and there where people get larger audiences at least for a time, but generally not. So the, the kind of establishment can always push these things in one way or another over and above all these small publications, except in rare moments, which we I don't think can predict, unless someone here can predict it, if you can
3: I, uh, I when I refer to partisan journalism I'm referring to actual political parties whose job it is to get people elected. Yeah. And uh you know, personally I don't think there's a line like you refer to except for maybe the line between useful truth yeah and useful falsehood. Falsehoods right. are useful to a lot of people to gain power. Right. Uh but ideally in a democracy, citizens would have some access to useful truth. Right. And what I'm wondering is whether in this environment where basically I think the conventional journalism has failed, you watch the uh, uh, debate uh, uh, last night and Obama got hit over the head by etch- etcher sketch, You know, uh, he was all prepared to fight on points that uh, uh, Romney had made previously, and Romney said, "Forget those yeah uh, and 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 was fairly credible at doing so right and and was only aimed at you know a narrow, undecided segment of the population um, and probably got them.
1: yeah, so one of the things we haven't talked about so far is this election and the fate of fact checking and yeah. and facts in general in this election, and I think that, to me, is particularly why these questions are so relevant right well, now. Well, I, I
3: don't want to dominate here, but yeah. just one, you know, for, for the average citizen, it's yeah. just not worth it right. to try to figure out any of this stuff. You're yeah. talking about multi, you know, they're talking about trillion dollars here, trillion dollars there. Nobody understands that stuff. What they need is somebody they can trust to tell them how to vote, basically. Right. And, and that's what I'm talking about in terms of partisan journalism.
1: Right, and so maybe the question is, is that always going to have to be the legacy institutions that really can refer back to the standard of objectivity, or is there some way that new experimental organizations that are trying to sometimes advocate and sometimes not, is there a way that they could become trustworthy? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. A yeah. new
3: political party designed around information and around citizens' need for information You know, uh, a dues paying membership supporting a professional uh, staff of journalists who can actually deliver some truth. Right. That seems to me to be an alternative.
1: Right.
5: Well, just to continue the conversation, in the context of a of a, I mean, the frame in which all of this conversation is happening is a frame which excludes whole lots of possible realities. I mean, we're talking about a... Uh, so when we talk about sort of partisan journals, we're talking about people who are arguing on the spectrum from A to B. Right. Um, so um, so there, are, there are whole ranges of sort of ways of seeing the world that are not dreamt of in the philosophies of any of the people who are arguing yeah um, in terms of objectivity, so it seems to me that to get to break out of that frame, a journalist has no choice but to write about to write about things from perspectives that would be viewed as partisan. in other words right. they're, they're, you can't call people's attention to certain realities like the realities of power in this country without right. saying things that are by definition transgressive so i, I guess'm I'm, I'm having trouble imagining how we can see a journalism that isn't anything but um, driven by s- uh, some uh, something that I'd call ideological, some desire to sort of yeah. look at things from a different perspective than the one that's being served to us all the time.
1: I agree with that. And I think that's part of um, why I think that a discussion like this is so important because I feel like, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is the, the problem with objectivity that got demonstrated over and over again over the last hundred years. And one of the thing that, things that Michael Shudson points out in his book, um, Discovering the News, is that you know, it gets to the point in the 20th century where this uh, removing the author from the from the story and the point of view makes journalism very vulnerable to uh, public relations firms and partisan interests. If you, if you uh, uh, and we've even seen that more recently, and if you require both sides of the story or multiple sides of the story then it's possible for a small special interest group to say, oh well my crazy perspective is needs to be one of the sides of this story. I think one of the most interesting things that's happened in the news industry in the last year is NPR changing its guidelines for reporters um, so that they're not required necessarily to include all sides on a story um, and that they are required to think about pursuing truth, um, how whatever that means for NPR reporters, but that's how they talk about it in the NPR guidelines. So I think you're right. I think that there is a sense that... Uh, Objectivity or uh, the journalism of the 20th century is uh, the dream has been somewhat shattered and, and there is a move towards different alternatives. And I think what, what we're not doing is talking enough about what are the assumptions behind those alternatives. So the things that we've been talking about here where you know maybe sometimes we engage in action but sometimes we don't. Maybe that's okay because there are multiple voices and we're just one voice. I think that all of those things are possible answers to, okay, we need to move towards something else and it's going to have to be somewhat ideological. But no one that I can tell has really articulated that. I feel like we keep kind of doing this balancing act of, yes, we need to move in this direction, but at the end of the day, we're impartial and we're adhering to the standards of the 20th century. I think David Bornstein's, uh, uh, some of his language in that, that editorial that I mentioned is an example of that. And of course, he's doing that because he has to, to some degree, because he's a writer for the New York Times. But I feel like that, that happens.
3: Objectivity is an ideology. Right. I mean, I've been in the uh, publishing business all my career. I, I, objectivity is not the business we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and political parties aren't necessarily all that ideological. They're, they're focused on getting elected. And so I, I just don't think you're, you know, when you juxtapose ideology to partisanship, uh, I mean, our, you know, our objectivity to partisanship. I don't, I don't see that.
1: So you would say that objectivity is another kind of partisanship?
3: It's an ideology. It's an ideal. Yeah. It's, it often doesn't have a lot to do with truth.
1: But there's some sort of point of reference that I think it offers. Would you agree that there's I, – I agree with you. It's an ideal. It's, never, it's an ideal that's never been achieved, right, in journalism. But it does offer a set of references – that reporters used to claim accuracy or to claim the credibility of their stories. And I think that's more what's at stake here than the the bigger claims of objectivity. It's, you know, what's going to happen to those points of reference? Are we going to continue to use them? Are we going to add other points of reference? Are we going to move away from the old points of reference? That, to me, is the question.
3: I mean, if you're referring to, as objectivity, what I call he said, she said journalism, which is what we have now. One side says this, the other side says this. Nobody knows the difference, and nobody, and the reporters, least of all, try to figure it out. Um, and, and, and they just report it, yeah, without telling you which one is telling the truth.
5: Mhm. I'm talking about things that I think are more subtle, like like when police kill people they're rarely talked about as people killing people. They're talked about the police, about it happened, someone got shot. In other words, um, when the society uses its power to dis- to kill people, it's distinctly different from when an individual murders another individual. Um, and we don't talk about it that way. So it's not just about objectivity, about whether someone said yep. someone got shot. It's the whole frame, which is, I think, bigger than... Uh, I'm d- and I'm not... I'm not arguing that someone should see it from my perspective. I'm just saying that the w- we ha- that everything we've talked about about journalism has been within this very constrained space and that, that we need to break out of that before uh, it, we, um, where, am I, where am I going with this? There is no ob- there is no objectivity to be had. We need to find we need to find ways of letting voices that break out of those frames be heard. Right. Um, and yes, we need some ways of evaluating them, but I don't think it has anything to do with a notion of objectivity.
1: Yeah. And to be clear, I'll say I think what I mean when I'm referencing objectivity is a set of standards that has appeared in journalism in the in the 20th century that does have to do with he said she said that does have to do with you know certain ways of of r- removing. Uh, the actor when it has to do with police or whatever. It's, it's a set of conventions uh, that, are def- that all exist together because there is this ideal of objectivity above them. And I think what you're talking about is, you know, let's, let's consider a different set of conventions. And I think what's really difficult about that and was difficult at the time is when you're doing that, when you're trying to create a new convention, you've got to find new language for it. And you don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And that's where we are right now, and that's where we were then.
2: just make a comment that uh, there is a big difference between ideal and ideology. Uh, one is uh, less of a system. Uh, An ideology is, uh, is a fabricated system that is meant to uh, suggest to people something that is highly unlikely. Uh, that's not a criticism of anything. I'm just... Uh, when we speak of objectivity as uh, a... Uh, Ideology. I think there's a powerful point being made there, and that yeah. is that uh, we give serv- lip service to a concept that has some roots in an ideal, but it's a cynically manipulated concept for other purposes. So yeah. uh, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I, I'm sure it does. Yeah. Uh, let me just uh, go back to... Uh, the start, your, your title, and that is civic media. So I'm, I'm interested in this, this term because yeah. uh, we've been grappling with this term for a long time. And your notion of civic media is, is it, it, it seems to me what you're suggesting is civic media is media that is action-oriented, that mm-hmm. there's some sort of, uh, maybe that's not all it is, but could you maybe say a little more? About sure. what we can learn about civic media by looking at this period in the eighteen nineties, and then sort of thinking through that period to contemporary times.
1: Yeah. So um, you know, and I I put a question mark <laughs> at, at in this title because um, I'm not. You know, we could argue all day about whether yellow journalism is really civic media. But I think what I'm interested in doing is looking at examples of. Um, you know, I had a conversation with David Bornstein, actually, at the Civic Media Conference earlier in the summer. And he was telling me about fixes and solutions journalism. And he was saying, you know, has this ever happened before in the history of journalism? Like, what are the things that we can look to? And that's one of the things that got me thinking about this talk or this, this chapter. And, and so I think the thread that runs through this is this idea that you could actively and deliberately make an improvement to the world in the process of mediating it. And 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 that's what I'm interested in, in making a connection to. And so here, and I struggled with the language, and you probably heard it a little bit. I moved back and forth. I think action or activism is is what the common thread is, although activism is a tricky word because it wasn't really a very commonly used word in the 19th century. I mean, this is something that interests me as well, is that the very notion of how you act on the world and the language you use to describe it also changes in different moments in media history. But So I'm still working with the language of how to articulate this in a way that can apply across historical periods, but it's this idea that there's something that you could do to change the world in the process of coming up with a new way of mediating the world that I'm trying to trace in history. And that's what I think the common thread is.
0: just really wanted, it it really revolved mostly around politics and getting an answer from politicians around issues that people cared about. I think it stemmed a little bit, you said that uh, journalism because of this idea of objectivity is prey to PR firms and so there was a sort of frustration when the first fish got elected with that campaign really sort of like playing around with the idea that um, journalism needs needs something for the next day and it needs to be objective and therefore there's a way of manipulating that but um, I'm curious just basically about your thoughts on that and how that sort of fits into the history that you're looking for. So I can't say that I know a lot about public journalism Um,
1: so but you know it does seem like there are examples throughout the last century of uh, newspapers or media institutions exploring alternatives and exploring ways to engage readers. Now, in this particular case, I don't know enough in, about it to be able to say, well, that was more of a publicity move or, or more of an activist move. I mean, that would be one of the first questions that comes to mind. I mean, Why were they engaging readers? Were they engaging readers because they were trying to get more readers, or were they engaging readers because they had some sort of agenda uh, behind what they were doing? Uh, But in general, it does seem like, uh, you know, another moment in history that one could look at and try to understand how it fits into all of this is the new journalism of the 1960s. And that was another move towards uh, more uh, uh, bringing the individual reporter and, and, and reflective ideas into journalism. And so I guess I would say that the issues that we're talking about are ongoing and come up in examples... Of the history of news, uh, you know, throughout the last century. Um, And what I see as different now or what is interesting to me about now and comparing it to the late 19th century is this sort of perfect storm of the entrance of a new, um, a new kind of technology, a new medium, and uh, the way that that shifts institutions and and how that really ultimately starts to unhinge Uh, the foundation or or, or boundaries and mixing metaphors here, but how that really starts to move uh, the lines that surround how we think about news. Um, And I think that while there was a lot going on, and you can point to a lot of examples in the 20th century of of people who were thinking outside of objectivity or outside of the, the conventional journalistic profession, it doesn't feel like it had the same effect on really opening things up and 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 leaving questions about about where news is, is going to go. Um, I guess in general another thing that I'd I'd love to think about more that's sort of outside of this talk but is there in the 20th century is the rise of alternative media and what role that plays. Um, and I'll just say that you know that that would be another interesting conversation for us to have at some point. I mean you could argue that alternative media in the United States were doing some of the early work of thinking outside of existing conventions that, that, um, that now um, is, is happening more uh, actively or more profusely.
2: I don't know if any of you saw Andrew's uh, graphic this morning of the number of tweets during the presidential uh, debate. I think there was something like, uh, was it 10 million? Something like that is oh. this chart. And you realize you're (laughs) in an entirely different era for news and reporting, because there's all this uh, chatter. And, I mean, the dimensionality of it is uh, perplexing and fascinating at the same time, but definitely a different world, because uh, there was never anything like that before. Yeah,
1: I mean, even from four years ago and definitely eight years ago, it seems very different.
2: Okay, any other questions? I think we'll uh, thank you very much, Kelly. This is a great conversation and fascinating project. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for the questions.